Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be in Matthew 5, and then we're going to flip real quick to Matthew 18. I want to read both passages. But as we've been working through this series called Life Together, uh, it's inevitable that we would come to a series, or excuse me, a, a topic, a sermon like this, How to Handle Conflict. So that is what we will be addressing tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5, and then we'll go to Matthew 18. Matthew 5, 23. These are the words of God. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to, to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up to the last quadrants. And then Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and the tax collector. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy God, let us come to your word open to being surprised, to learn. God, silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, and penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. And we know that you can, and we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. So up until this point, we've examined the nature and purpose of community as well as some of the problems that can occur should we take our gaze off of Christ, our great shepherd. Disruptions in a community require change in each of us. Any sort of disruption requires some sort of change in each of us. And change starts at the individual level and then it spills out into the various uh, spheres that we are involved in, our various relationships. Often it requires more than simply a change of, of thinking, although that is part of the process. It requires a change of fatuous or, or silly um, habits that we may have developed, uh, foolishness, foolish rhythms of life, uh, perhaps in even situations and contexts needs, needs to change. But that said, harmonious relationships built on trust and peace are sometimes difficult to establish, let alone maintain. Lord willing, we're going to look at how to build trust next week. But it's difficult to establish those things, let alone maintain those things. Some versions of peace are projects to make. Sometimes peace is something we just have to make. Other versions need to be disturbed, like our false peace that's lulled the church in America to sleep. Um, righteous peace is always to be kept and guarded. The bond of unity in the Spirit is always worth contending for. Just remember that when you think about life together. 
The bond of unity in the Spirit is always something worth contending for. The disruptions that occur in community invariably stem from hearts that have deviated from obedience. Note that. The disruptions, <coughs> the disruptions that occur in community invariably stem from hearts that have deviated from obedience. So anytime something happens in your marriage, uh, think of it in your family life, your friendships, all of those things stem from hearts that have deviated from obedience. Some deviation has occurred, something has happened, some breakdown. James 4.1 puts it like this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures? The, the source is your pleasures that wage war in your members? So even James tells us right away, where, where, is, where does all this come from? It's the problems in your heart, essentially, is what he's saying. So conflict and quarreling isn't something that just happens to us from the outside. Conflict and quarreling isn't something that happens to us from the outside as if it were this amorphous cloud that infects us from time to time. Conflict is something that arises out of hearts that are unsettled. Conflict is something that arises out of hearts that are unsettled. Unsettled hearts with unsettled desires lead to unsettled relationships. When restless hearts are in the process of fashioning an idol, or even when they are in the process of veering away from holiness, quarrels ineluctably develop, invariably develop. So peace often, think about it in your own relationships, peace is disturbed when self-rule is lacking. Think of it that way. Peace is disturbed when self-rule is lacking. When self-control runs out, the relationship starts to stall and stifle, and difficulties arise. Any real conflict, and, and again, not a perceived conflict, but a real genuine conflict, any conflict can be traced back to a breakdown in self-leadership and self-government. Something went off the rails somewhere, and now we have a mess to try to clean up. But how do we resolve these issues? We know where they come from. How do we resolve them? What is the biblical prescription? Does the Bible even address this problem? And the answer, of course, is yes. And before we dig into this, I just want to say, uh, really at the front, front end of this, w one more thing um, about this topic. Over the past 15 years of my pastoral experience, uh, I can say with confidence that Christians, by and large, do not know how to handle conflict, not even a little bit just don't know how to handle it. I mean, the world doesn't know how to handle it either, but just in my experience, Christians just, we don't know how to handle it. I've seen marriages destroyed, friendships torn asunder, um, people leave church, churches over silly misunderstandings, you name it. Just, I've seen, I've seen it all. <laughs> just sort of a, a, a war veteran here that, that has seen quite a bit. And pastors, for example, have been on, on the receiving end of people's unrealistic expectations and faulty assumptions. But then you also have church members who have suffered um, from insecure, passive-aggressive leaders. You know, it's just everybody is involved in this to some degree or another. And if it's a scenario involving conflict, I have seen firsthand the destruction that can occur. And so I believe... In my view, handling conflict biblically should be something revisited often and always. I think it's something we really need to, to really have down pat. And 
Not many sermons have been preached on this. Um, sometimes you'll hear things here and there in the context of church discipline and what that means, and we're going to talk about that. But I think to ignore it is to seal one's demise. If you're not, if you don't, like, if you go into marriage and you don't even have like the basic rules down, how are we going to deal with each other? Because we got two sinners under one roof trying to be Christ-like, and it, oftentimes we're not Christ-like. And how, how are we going to resolve conflict? If you don't have that plan in place, and that's part of what I do in premarital, premarital counseling, but if you don't have that plan in place, you're really going to have a difficult time. And so I think Christians really need to revisit this. And so let's look at our text. Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. That's kind of the main passage there. So having just taught about the dangers of unrighteous anger, Jesus now applies the healing balm of reconciliation. The, the scenario here he lays out is rather straightforward. A worshiper has traveled all of the way to the temple to give his offering to the Lord per the law of Moses. As he prepares his heart for worship, perhaps he's confessing his sins before the Lord and getting himself right. He has an animal in tow he's going to offer at the temple. Uh, something dawns on him. Oh yeah, my, uh, I have a brother back home who has something against me. Something, he's reminded all of a sudden in this, wow, there's, I know of somebody who has a problem with me. And he doesn't speculate that this person has a problem with him. He knows it. He, he knows in this scenario that Jesus lays out. As one writer put it, at worship we are at center, and at center we are reminded of circumference. So drawing near to God is meant to make us consider the totality of our lives, our center, our relationships, all of it. So what is the man to do in this situation? He's at the temple. Jesus explains that one aspect of true and pure worship is our relationship with others. Reconciliation is just as important as taking communion. Indeed, it may even be more important. Can there be communion without union? Here, the act of worship, Jesus says, can wait. The very thing that God has prescribed to do at the temple, it can wait, he says. It can wait. God desires mercy, not sacrifice, the Bible says repeatedly. Jesus says, leave the animal gift at the altar, travel all the way back home, even if it's 100 miles and you've got to walk. You're here at the temple in Jerusalem, go back. Go all the way back home whether it's north, south, east, or west, wherever you got to go, go, even if, that's, if it's that far, and be reconciled to your brother, and then come all the way back and then present your offering at the temple. Jesus, that, that, that seems unreasonable. Why would you tell us, I mean, 100 miles is a long way. That's like a week's worth of walking, more than that. Jesus thinks it's that important. Deal with the problem before the consequences, he goes on, of prison and fines end up coming against you. And Jesus teaches us that seeking reconciliation with people we have hurt or people who have hurt us is a tremendous priority. It is a tremendous priority, and a failure to do so is a failure to worship the true and living God. How many people have gathered with the people of God for church and doing like what we're doing this evening and, and they have 
consternation in their hearts towards someone, or they know someone has something against them, and they just sort of grin and bear it, and we've not taken this verse seriously. If you know someone has something against you, go to them promptly. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and the tax collector. Now, the passage here is one of the key texts for dealing with conflict. In the previous one, Jesus urges us to go out to the person that we know has something against us. In this passage, Jesus urges us to go seek out the person with whom we have something against because they have sinned against us. In other words, no matter who did what, all parties at all times have the responsibility to move towards each other in order to restore fellowship. So there's no category of, well, if they have an issue, they can just come to me. I've heard that a billion times. Who is responsible to start the process of reconciliation? The offender or the offended? Who? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer. Yes. <laughs> Our Lord instructs us in handling conflict with several things. Note that there are four conditions in the text. If your brother sins, if he does not listen, if he refuses to listen to them, and lastly, if he refuses to listen even to the church. The legal procedure is a tight-knit process that exists for very, very specific reasons. And the first thing to keep in mind when we address a passage like this is that self-control is where everything begins. Self-control is actually where everything begins. The process of church discipline only ever needs to begin because someone has lost control of themselves and sinned, giving themselves to some transgression. Now remember, peace is disturbed when self-rule is lacking. And this is why self-mastery is so important. We're going to deal with that in a, that particular aspect of our lives in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. But church discipline starts and ends with the concept of self-control. The process starts when self-control is lost. Somebody has sinned against you. And then you go and, the, and you follow this process in order to restore self-control in the sinner. So it begins and ends with self-control. So, step one in the process is to evaluate the sin. If your brother sins, he says, Jesus tells us. That's step one. D evaluate it. Did someone sin against you, or did they just do something you personally don't like? Did they just do something that wasn't sinful, and you're thinking, that person is so foolish, why would they do that? I'm going to go tell them how foolish they are. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> Is it a sin? Sometimes conflict arises because of differences that aren't even sinful. There's just different styles, different views, different personalities, different preferences, things that are not sin, biblically divine, defined, uh, that are just preferential. It's not a sin. Sometimes conflict comes about because of righteous reasons. Perhaps someone thinks this decision is better than that decision, both of which aren't sinful. How many spouse 
arguments happen because both of you have an opinion about something that, frankly, neither issue is a sin, but you just have strong opinion on it. Okay, I see some smiles. Some of you may or may not have experienced that before. Sometimes conflict arises because of that. And in these cases, it's best to learn how to just simply clearly communicate, how to serve the other, how to express ourselves clearly and with patience, prayer, and humility of mind, try to navigate a way forward, giving, pre- giving preference to the other. Sometimes that's just what, what's required. Now, if it is a sin, it must be clearly shown to be one from the Word of God. Then and only then can you proceed. I remember David Chilton quoted a... Uh, I think it was in the first John three, one of the most freeing verses in scripture was that uh, sin is a violation of the law of God. He says that's the most freeing thing ever. And it's free because sin is not a violation of someone's you know, personality or preferences. It's a violation. God's given us a standard. Isn't that freeing to know what exactly is righteous and what is not righteous? And then we can live in light of that. It's far more generous than our current humanistic law structure. So step one, evaluate the sin. Step two, Jesus says, is to go to the person in private. Boy, many of things have gone wrong with this. This is a command, by the way, not a suggestion. This is a command from Christ. Do not despise them. You are not permitted to have hatred and despising, uh, some sort of despising of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it was bombing quote from a few weeks ago. You're not free to overly love people and you're also not free to despise them. So don't despise them. Do not gossip about them. Do not start prattling about it with others. No, you go to them in private. Listen, part of the reason for this is the greatest chance to win your brother or sister over happens in private, not in the court of public opinion. Because they've sinned against God and you want to win them, so you go to them privately, and more often than not, that's where things can can be taken care of. Jesus wants us to tie up all the loose ends. There's no room for misunderstanding and obfuscation. We must get clarity and we must be at peace with all so long as it depends on you. Paul says in Romans. So notice that we are to show him his fault, the text says. Show him. Okay? Not speculate. Show. This is what happened. I heard you say this. According to Scripture, this is a sin. I'm urging you to repent. Show him his fault. Be ready with, the, with Bible verses. I mean, you've got to know your Bible to be able to do that, but be ready. Be ready to show him or her the sin. Don't accuse someone and walk away. Well, I did what Matthew 18 says. I just accused them and walked away. That's not part of the process. Approach the situation more like this. You know, as far as I can tell, this is what you said or did, and this is why it doesn't meet the Bible's standards for holiness. And before I pass final judgment on whether or not you sinned against me like this, like I think you did, Please explain what you said or did from your perspective, because from my experience of it, this is what happened, and I think that's a problem. Sometimes we simply need to investigate before we rebuke somebody and make sure the the assumptions are thrown to the side, because many relationships have suffered because of assumptions. Assuming motive, assuming something that took place, took place for your reason, and it couldn't be because of some other reason, 
Many issues could be resolved by just simply doing it this way. And notice Jesus says, you and him alone. You and him alone. We go alone because the offense was alone. It was between two parties. The bigger the offense and broader the scope, the broader the knowledge base in dealing with the sin. It kind of circles out from there. You don't get the church involved, everybody involved, before you've started the process. So we start small. We start very small. You and the other person in private, that's where it has to begin. Go to them, go to the individual individually. Okay? Don't take 15 people so you can club them to death. Now, if the person Jesus says acknowledges the sin, then you have won, or or literally you've exchanged enmity for friendship. The peace can be, you know, the peace between you can be restored. And again, more often than not, this is where it ends. This is where so much of it could end if we would just get this first step in place. The offended extends forgiveness, which means a commitment to never raise the issue again. Uh, He vows never to bring it up, never to talk about it again with anyone else. If you have forgiven someone, you've discharged them legally, they can't be brought to court again. It's done. It's gone. Forgiveness can only be granted on the grounds of repentance. By the way, children, learn this. I'm sorry you were offended is not repentance. I say children because the adults have to figure that out too. I'm so sorry that you were offended. I'm repenting. No, you're not. The offender has a God-commanded duty to examine himself to make sure that he has not sinned, if even unintentionally. Because how many things could have just been totally unintentional? To refuse to meet or even entertain the issue is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It does not reflect the love of Christ if you're unwilling to talk with someone and you just vanish from the situation. So do we, do we just confront every little thing? <laughs> do we confront every little thing? Great question. The answer is no. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 and 1 Peter 4.8. It also says that it is a glory... Uh, It is man's glory and honor to overlook an offense, Proverbs 19.11. So we are to keep short accounts with each other and pray that others do with us because we all sin. That's kind of the thing when when conflict arises, when we forget that we still sin too. And then you come in all hoity-toity on your proverbial pride horse and condemn everyone else. But we want to keep short accounts. Keep short accounts with each other. But if, if something is preventing the relationship from moving forward, it must be dealt with. Anything that makes you feel different towards the other person must be addressed. If you just like, come into church and I just can't stand the sight of that person, boy, do we have a problem. That's a major problem. And it should be dealt with. And it can be dealt with this way. Conflict should end here, but what if it doesn't? Step three. Step three is when the issue escalates and getting two or three witnesses involved to establish a matter, that's God's standard for justice. That's a quote straight out of the law of God. So when is it appropriate to bring someone else in? Well, Jesus says very clearly, if he does not listen. If you've gone in private and they don't listen, and you're you're convinced, like, this person really sinned, and they're just not seeing it. 
then I got to get other people involved. I need two or three witnesses. Now, hear me on this. No one else should be involved with an offense unless the person refuses to listen and turn from their sin. It's the only permission to move it to the next circle on the outer ring here. We want to keep the process small, and the only reason a situation should escalate is because the person refuses to listen. And this is the only condition for moving the situation to the next stage. But we must take caution before bringing in others. It could simply still be just a misunderstanding. We, we have to be diligent in making sure that we're dealing with unrepentant sin before moving on. And I've seen situations where you have one party who wants someone to apologize for something that they actually didn't do. They perceive it to be that way. And the last thing you want to do is apologize for something that you actually didn't do. And there's a way to try to be peaceful and engage in that regard, but oftentimes it just doesn't happen. It just, you know, there's, there's no way to resolve it, and so we give it to the Lord and we move on with our lives, but it becomes a very difficult thing. So if someone won't listen, you bring others. And these are, by the way, not necessarily witnesses to the sinful issue. They, it could be, could be someone who witnessed it, but it, may, it doesn't have to be. But it's merely confirmation of testimony of other counselors who, who come and try to help in the reconciliation process. You're bringing in other wise people and judicial people to come who are shrewd and have wisdom to look at the situation and evaluate it to try to help sort it out. And what do they do? Well, they meet with the person to gather the facts. Um, if the offender refuses, well, the situation's gotten worse, and then it becomes potentially a removal from the body of Christ. But if they're willing to meet, you investigate the issues, you try to hear from all sides and perspectives, and if the, if the person is repentant, then good. Obviously, you resolve the situation, and it ends there. And forgiveness can be granted, fellowship can be restored, and the issue can be resolved. But if they're not repentant, then it goes to the next level. And all of this, by the way, takes time. You can't always rush it. I think we do have a responsibility to try to deal with things as quickly as possible, in the moment, if possible. And that means having a handle on your emotions so you can make sure that you're thinking and acting wisely and not just haphazardly. But some of this just takes time. The, the principle of two or three witnesses is important for crime and testimony, but it's also important for Christian unity. We must do this stuff together, helping restore people into right relationship. You can't put a time limit on it, and nor should you. You work it out with prayer, and you schedule as many meetings as necessary. Death by meeting is a real thing, but you try, and as much as you can, resolve it. If that doesn't work, step four is tell it to the church. The fourth step is to widen the scope of people involved in pleading for repentance from the offender. So piecing together other scriptures, it seems that telling the elders and pastors and members, everyone, the church, is the next step of this. Um, everyone is in the church is to be made aware um, in our case, we would have a heads of household meeting and then we would have a, a, an announcement for everybody and we would talk about it and, and gather specifically for that. But it's, people would need to be made aware, not for gossip, um, not for slander. We, everyone should know so we can pray, so we can grieve, and we can protect the wider witness of Christ in the world. 
So the session in this regard and the members try to meet, try to beg for repentance. Because if somebody is in unrepentant sin, perhaps the most loving thing is for the whole church to rebuke him, pray for him, cry over him or her, and deal with it that way. A bigger light must be shined on the unrepentant one. David Garland said that the involvement of the entire community is a last effort to get the offender to listen and confess the sin. That's the goal. The goal isn't to steamroll people. The goal is confession of sin, a restoration of fellowship with Christ and his people. So telling the church brings accountability and hopefully conviction as well. The church should know because we need to be clear on identifying who represents Jesus in the world. This person, if he doesn't listen, does not represent Christ. If it escalates to this, the church should know so as to not fellowship with this person, but to withdraw from from him, keep away from him, don't eat with him or her, and continually calling on them for repentance. Keep in mind that the goal, again, is always restoration. The goal is self-government. The goal is a restored fellowship. And if he or she doesn't, doesn't listen, then he or she is excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ, not just locally, but universally. Church courts convene. People are made aware. There's witnesses. There's testimony. Yep, we agree as this body that this person is unrepentant, they are hating Christ, they're bringing reproach upon him, and we now excommunicate him from the body of Christ. It's not kicking him out of a local church, it is removing that person from the visible church. They are gone. They are, they are to be treated as someone who is not a Christian. And the church is binding and loosing, in in Christ's language here, making judgment on the sin in a covenantal judicial manner. We don't judge the heart, for only God sees the heart. We know that. But we judge the actions. We judge the fruit. We are to judge those things. We are to treat him as if he was an unbeliever in need of evangelism. The church court and the session must do their due diligence, of course, So what do we see in the New Testament? Well, we see a few things. One, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a few things, but one of the things he says is, remove him from your midst, clean out the leaven, get him out of your midst. He says that twice. Deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Maybe they'll be delivered, but they deliver him over, hand them over, uh, hand them over to Satan. That's 1 Timothy as well, 120. And treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is someone who's outside of the church. That's how they're to be treated. Not with scorn, mind you, but they're not, they're, we're not on the same page. We are not brothers and sisters in Christ. They have sinned egregiously, and if they don't repent, God will bring his judgment. And he already has through the church. So an unrepentant person who does not wish to change must not be allowed in the church to leaven unrighteousness. He or she must be removed. Listen, you think, boy, that seems really harsh. Well, Jesus cares a great deal about his bride. After all, he bled for her. He cares deeply about his bride, and you should care just as much. Now, before I uh, share some rules for handling conflict, and then I'm going to give you five steps to consider, I want to remind you what is required. What is required in order to deal with conflict? What must be in place before handling such things? First, a humble heart. 
a humble heart. This is not about power and prestige and executing your executive power on somebody. This is about life and death. This is about fellowship. This is about Christ and his bride. A humbled heart should be first. You also need a gentle and peaceful attitude. You're not going to win someone over by being just malicious and jerky. A gentle and peaceful attitude. You also need a commitment to being patient in order to see the process through. I have been through these things that have taken weeks upon weeks, if not months. It's very, very difficult. You need patience. You need patience. And you should also have a surplus of forbearance and toleration of others. It's sort of that thing like, such were some of you, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 6. You know, what it, such were some of you. So be patient with others. Christ's patient with you. He died for you. He forgave your sins. Whatever happened can be forgiven too. So have a humble heart, gentle and peaceful attitude, a commitment to patience, and a surplus of forbearance. If you are unwilling to be humble, peaceful, committed to patience, and full of forbearance, you know, what do you have that you have not received, that sort of perspective, then you are not fit to handle conflict if you don't have those things. You're not fit. You're not fit. You will just, far from ingratiate the person, you will aggravate them. So you're not. You're not fit. Uh, if you have pride or hatred in your heart, you're not ready. If you don't want peace, but you just want to vent your agenda, you're not ready. If you just want to allay your conscience and stick it to that person, you're not ready. Spurgeon said, Our Father in heaven will not have us despise those who are precious in his eyes. Now that said, I have a few rules to consider, and we're going to start with this. Consider overlooking the sin. That's a good option. It's always an option. Consider overlooking the sin. They have to do business with Christ. Each of us every day has to confess our own sins before Christ. And if you know that someone's in a habit of doing that, and you know, and, and maybe perhaps they've given you indication that this particular sin is something that they, they know they struggle with and they're working towards it, you don't have to come in guns a-blazing. Perhaps you just pray for them. Now, if it's a habitual thing and we want to love them, we want to confront that. Yes, absolutely. But consider overlooking. Hell hath no fury like a pedantic Pharisee on the lookout for the dust in everyone else's eyes. Consider this pre-forgiveness exercise. Burying the sins, follies, and foibles of others long before they come to your doorstep. Conviction and reproof is for real sins, not annoyances, not disappointments, or, or any sort of... Uh, annoyance that just comes your way. I just don't like how they do that or he does that. I'm annoyed. Anybody get annoyed with anybody? Yeah, okay. It's not a sin, but you can overlook it. <laughs> I'm annoyed that you're so annoyed at this. No. <laughs> and just ask the question, has the Lord been patient with you? Then be patient with others. Consider overlooking, overlooking it, covering it where you can. One-off type of issues are fit for this approach. Repeat offenders, however, must be dealt with. Another rule. Um, don't ask someone to lunch only to then dump on them. Hey, you want to get coffee? Oh, great, I haven't seen you. Yes, I'm so looking forward to chatting. And then you proceed to put them on trial. 
Here's your coffee. I'll buy it. Let me tell you why you're a jerk. <laughs> this, I've, I've, I've seen it. I'm not, I'm not making it up. This sort of foolishness is not how to handle conflict at all. It's not wise. It's not helpful. Please don't ever do that. And, and if you need to meet, it's okay to indicate why. Like, I have some concerns I want to talk to you about. Now, don't string them along for like three weeks. It needs to be immediate. Another rule, don't ask someone if they have a problem with you when you're the one who has the problem with them. Passivity and manipulation ought to be far from Christian practice. If you're not sure, communicate clearly without assumptions, without surmising. Don't say, I think you have a problem with me when you're the one that's raging inside about them. Another to consider, don't wait, deal with it immediately. Ephesians 4.26 reads, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Very popular, well-known verse. As soon as possible, make peace. Anger itself isn't a sin. Right? Be angry, do not sin. It's not a sin immediately. But unrighteous anger can metastasize and pollute the heart. Do not go to bed with a troubled heart. It only makes things worse. If we don't deal with the things as they come, which requires Christian maturity, of course, then we'll be prone to forego the biblical model and we'll start leaking everything to the press. And then we have a bigger problem. Finally, another rule. Don't confront someone because you just want to be right or because you're mad. Confront them because they sinned against God and need to be restored to Him. If you think you are first in this, it will never go well. I'm confronting them because they did this to me. Me, 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 me. Don't do that. It's bad for the soul. Think of it in terms of your transgression, or excuse me, your uh, relationship and the transaction that you have with Christ and what he's done for you. Because aren't we really, 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 really good at giving grace to ourselves? And very poor at giving grace to others? I want to close with five simple steps to consider when handling conflict. And uh, so much more could be said, but this will summarize it for us. First, consider the matter before the Lord in prayer. Pray before anything else. Before anything else, pray. Consider the matter before the Lord in prayer. We want peace and we want it as quick as possible, but not if we're foregoing wisdom and guidance from the Lord. None of us is capable of resolving conflict apart from the mercy and wisdom of God. Go to the matter in prayer first. Second, ensure that the Word of God has gripped your heart. Ensure that the Word of God has gripped your heart. So you've prayed about it? Great. Has the Word of God gripped your heart on the matter? Have you actually done a word search to figure out exactly how to handle this situation? Have you looked up the sin that you're accusing someone of? Do you even have a category for it? Could you point to a Bible verse? Ensure that the Word of God has gripped your heart. We want Scripture to grip us because we need to know what it is God requires of us. We need to discern if the situation requires confrontation or if it's not sin, it may require something else. So how do we know if it's a sin? It must violate the Word of God. So going to the Word keeps us grounded, keeps us humbled, and keeps us prepared for anything that may lie ahead. Number three, very simply, check your motives. Check your motives. 
And you'll want to look up Galatians 1 later, but I'm going to read it. Galatians, excuse me, Galatians 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1 reads, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Probably the classic text on counseling, Christian counseling, right there. Galatians 6, 1. The motive for any sort of reconciliatory efforts should always be holiness and restoration in both the offender and the offended. If your motive is anything but restoration and peace, you're not ready to proceed. Check your motives. Perhaps you just need clarity. Don't assume it was a sin and you want to talk to this person. I need clarity because you said this and this is the way I interpreted it and I may be wrong, but I need to know from you, what is your motive? If your motive is just, I'm going to put them on blast, you're not doing it right. You're not. Fourth, graciously and humbly use Scripture to confront the individual. Not to bludgeon them to death. Like, don't grab your 50-pound old-school King James Bible and hit them with it. Graciously and humbly use Scripture to confront the individual. Pleading your case means using Scripture as a guide and a source of truth and a source of comfort. Again, not a club for beating them down. We want people, including ourselves, to align with the truth in order to win them back to fellowship and peace. That's the goal. And so if it's a sin, it's a, ju a judicial problem. The only solution is the Spirit working in concert with the Bible. So come and say, hey, this is what was said, and this is how I understand Scripture to sit, to do, you know, speak to this issue. I believe you sinned, and you sinned against me, and I'm hurt by that. You come with gentleness, looking to restore the other with the authority of Scripture. What, I mean, what, you, have the, you have what you need. Fifth, <clears throat> reiterate your desire for peace and welcome them back with forgiveness. Reiterate your desire for peace and welcome them back with forgiveness. Two Kind of two steps in the last step, but reiterate your desire for peace. You want peace in the relationship. Tell them how much you want peace in the relationship. And then welcome them back with forgiveness. You're trying to win your brother or sister back to the Lord. In order to actually win him back, forgiveness but must be ready to deploy once repentance has taken place. Be ready. Be ready to forgive. Don't be so bitter in your heart that you've forgotten how much the Lord has forgiven you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it is the power of God for reconciliation. And when we remember that Christ died for our sins, we are quick to note that the sins of others are included in the deal. Let's pray. Father, there's so much that could be said on this topic. Your word gives us ample resources to help us to figure out this thing called life together. And I pray that your spirit would drive us back to the word. Lord, help us to know how to handle ourselves, how to handle one another. God, how to, how to simply be a joy to be around with one another. Uh, give us clarity of thought when we face these types of issues, Lord. Help us not run to run away from conflict but to see it as simply a part of the process of sanctification. God, your church is in dire need of assistance in this topic. I pray that you would aid us and help us, Lord. 
so that we can be stewards to keep this bond of peace you've given us by your Spirit. And we thank you, Christ, for your work. Thank you for reconciling us to you and help us to reconcile with one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen.